0: We're in the book of Colossians, and if you haven't been with us, a paragraph summary of the book of Colossians is this, that this is a letter written probably somewhere in the early 60s, not 1960s, but just 60s, all right, uh, that it was written to an earl, a, a young church who in many ways was flourishing, the gospel was going out from them, and yet the culture was starting to squeeze in on this church, and what they were primarily doing is challenging them and tempting them to shrink Jesus. In other words, to not make Jesus as big and as large as he is, but to shrink him and sort of put him in the mold, which is more comfortable. We've likened it to uh, the 31 flavors at at Baskin Robbins. It's like, all right, this is the kind of Jesus you want, then add a little bit of this and add a little bit of that and add a little bit of this other one, and that's fine. We're comfortable. And what we've seen is that the whole Bible does not allow us to do that. God will not be managed. Jesus will not be put in a box that the Bible actually says he is exalted over all, which has been the whole series. Now, here's the way we've kind of outlined it, is we've seen that Jesus is first. Chapter one says that all things were made by him and through him, and he, he holds all things together. He's not only is first, he actually went first. We see in chapter two that we were reconciled by his blood on the cross. And then what he challenges us to do, the implication of that is that you and I are then challenged to put him first. And he said, do it in three or four different ways. Chapter one, he says, I want Jesus to be exalted overall in your church. I mean, that seems like it ought to be pretty obvious. I mean, do you really call yourself a church if Jesus is not first, if his word is not paramount? But that's what he challenges them says number one, he needs to be exalted overall in your church. Chapter two, he says he's exalted overall in your heart. Chapter three, then he says he needs to be exalted overall in your day-to-day living, your parenting, your marriage, your work life. He says that's where he needs to be exalted overall. And then lastly, in chapter four, he says he needs to be exalted overall in your mission, in your mission. And last week, It has been so rewarding to hear all these stories all this week, just talking about, here's my one and here's my one. We talked about who is your one. Who's the one person that God has laid on your heart that is far from God, that he wants you to share the gospel with him or her and to pray and to pray for opportunity. Two great stories that came out of last week. One of them was a church member, I believe it was at the Arden campus, and they heard the message and it was about who's your one and about how do you pray for an opportunity to share and then walk through that open door. Before he was off the campus, before he was out of the parking lot, he calls his best friend. They've been best friends since middle school. He calls him up, and he's, or no, actually, he gets in the car. I take it back. He prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel with his best friend all the way since middle school. He gets in the car before he's out of the parking lot. His best friend calls him. His best friend, the one he just had prayed about, calls him. Said he's going through a horrendous time. He's going through a divorce. All this stuff is happening. Our guy shares the gospel with him right there on the phone. Before the day ends, the guy had repented and embraced Christ by faith. We're getting him plugged in to a church in Florida. Got a better one for you. I got another one for you. All right, here's this was at the Hendersonville campus. And so there's a young young man, 15-year-old man. He went to camp last week, came to Christ, and then got baptized last week. And so when he got baptized last week, he invited his dad to come and watch his baptism. So the son gets baptized at the early service at the Hendersonville campus. Dad is watching in the audience. When we talk about who's your one, who's your one, the dad, after the first service, goes up to one of our student pastors over there named Jacob Payne, and he's like, hey, what if I'm the one? What if I'm the one who needs Jesus? And so in between services, last week at the Andersonville campus, the dad who came to watch his son get baptized, professing his faith in Christ, Jacob leads him to Christ there in between services, the dad puts on the baptismal t-shirt, the wet t-shirt that his son had worn in the first service, put it on, and got baptized in the second service. So all that being said is, listen, great job on understanding God puts you on, he puts you on a mission. Now I know that's intimidating and actually the only thing more intimidating than that is when you get to the last section of some of the letters, the epistles, and you start to see all of these difficult names. And you look at all these difficult names like Tychicus and you're like, that looks like a disease, don't get that, right? And so we usually just skip over them. But what you're going to see is in this last section, while there's a little bit of cultural jumps we're going to have to make, it is an amazing not just passage of scripture, but it brings out two fundamental things about the Christian life. And so the way I thought, hey, here's the way I'm going to try to break it down. We're going we're to go through the first part and do a little work on the front end. I'm just going to give you a tiny little bio of each person. I mean, like a paragraph bio. You're like, why would you do that? You need to understand these are real people. They're real people. They're real. They have different names because they were in a different culture, but they're real people. They're real people just like you. They're not from a galaxy far, far away, and this is not once upon a time. These are real people. And almost always, they also represent some people that are at church today. It's like, that's who I am. I'm like that guy, or I'm like this lady. And so not only are they real people, they teach us a couple of huge fundamental implications from it, and let me give you the first one, then I'm gonna read through it, and I'm gonna come back to it, okay? These are two things we hit all the time, but I'm gonna show it to you and actually in people's life. And here's the first point I want you to do before we jump in the text. Every Christian needs gospel community, okay? Every Christ follower, you need gospel community. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna work through this text. I'm gonna show you of all guys and all people, the Apostle Paul is the one that is, the, he is like the, he is the D on the disc profile. He is the eight on the Enneagram. He is the Lone Ranger in the Western. That is who he is. But when you kind of dig back, he has got people around him, as you and I should as well. Let me show you a couple of the people, and then we'll ask, what does that look like for us, all right? Here's the guy I just mentioned, all right? Uh, Tychicus, you're like, is that the way you pronounce it? Um, you don't know, so as far as you know, yes, it is correct, all right? So Tychicus, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. And look at the description he says of him. And ask yourself the whole time, do I have people like that around me? Do I have community like that around me? Do I have gospel friends like that around me? Because here's what he said. Here's how he describes Tychicus. He is a beloved brother. Now, this is not a guy that throws out compliments real easily, all right? The apostle Paul is that guy that does not, like, flatter people. If you don't believe that, just look at some of the language he uses in different letters, all right? He's like, man, let that guy be delivered over to Satan. Let that guy be emasculated. Let, that guy's just, I mean, he, he does that, but here he's like, he's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant of the Lord. Now, quick deal that Tychicus, you don't see a ton about him. He's actually mentioned five times in the Bible, five times. He appears to be like the background guy for Paul. Paul's the platform guy. Tychicus is the guy in the back, all right? But the one thing about Tychicus is, you know what? You can rely on him. Now, don't you love people like that? You're like, Here, here's what we got to do. And if you say it one time, it is done. That's who he is. 14 years They've been friends. Somewhere around 14 years, he and Paul have been friends. They traveled together. They went to these revivals together. He's a high character God. He got stuff done, all right? Second guy, verse eight. says, Well, here's the rest of it. He says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, verse nine. And with him, and here's a guy that actually an entire letter is written around. He says, and with him, Onesimus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Now, don't miss this. Who is one of you? Beloved brother, one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, Onesimus, there's a tiny little letter in your New Testament called Philemon. And that whole letter, he is like the other main character. So in a nutshell, here is Onesimus. And this is a great parallel for some of you in here. Okay, again, Philemon was about But what Onesimus was is he was a runaway, what they call bondservant. Some of your translations say slave. That's not a great translation. It's actually bondservant. Because we as Americans, when we hear slave, we think transatlantic slave trade that obviously is a huge blight on our country's history. There's no place for that at all in the gospel. The Bible clearly forbids kidnapping, which is as close to the The slave trade is that we can, as the Bible talks about, but a bond servant was this. A bond servant was somebody who voluntarily basically sold himself over to another person when they owed him too much money. So you owed somebody too much money, you would say, okay, I'm going to go work for you until my debt or my bond is paid off. And when I pay that off, then I'm free. It's not racial, it's more financial. And so Onesimus is a guy that apparently he owes somebody a lot of money. He, He owes a guy named Philemon a lot of money and he runs away. He runs away. He runs away and he runs from his bond and again, that's what the Philemon is about but in this letter he says, receive him with grace. He says, receive him as one of you. This is a great reminder for some of you that you're kind of beat up and you're battered and you got some wounds and you got some hurts and you've made some mistakes and you're like, I'm not sure that God can put me on his team. And it's awesome that he's listed here among these faithful men and women and he says he's one of you. You need to be able to come to church and understand that in the gospel, there's not condemnation over you. Conviction, yes. Condemnation, no. Conviction is a loving father saying this is wrong, this is unhealthy, this will not lead to your flourishing. Conviction, as you did it, there is no hope. You're unfit for use. Condemnation's a building term. You look at a building and say that is condemned, you cannot use it, and God does not do that to his sons and daughters. And so you're sitting here and you're beat up and you're wounded, and one of the things that you can see is if you got some scars, that's proof that God heals, and when he heals you, he wants to actually then put you on mission. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, we're going to get to that, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. All right, let me give you a quick thing about these two folks. Aristarchus, right, good friend of Paul, shows up when Paul's in trouble. but don't you love friends like that? I mean, it seems like anytime Paul is getting beat up or thrown in jail, there's Aristarchus, all right? He is there. You got to like that guy. I mean, Paul would not have been the easiest guy to be friends with, correct? Not that super easy. Aristarchus was always there. All right, there's another guy here. He says John Mark. He says, okay, Mark, some, of you, some of you grew up in church, you know this. Some of you didn't grow up in church, you don't know this. Uh, John Mark is a young person who went on mission trips with Paul. And when he was on a mission trip with Paul, the mission trip got real hard and he bailed. He said, I'm out of here, I don't wanna do this, I'm going back home to my mom, I'm not gonna hang in there at all. And so what happens is he goes, but then when Paul gets ready for his next mission trip, he and a guy named Barnabas, they get in an argument, they get in a discussion about whether or not John Mark should go. And again, Paul is all about the task, he is all about the business, he's not perfect, he's all about getting it done, he's super serious. Barnabas is like super encouraging. I mean, you know that not all the time do Christians always get along. You guys ever know that? You know that? You know that Christians sometimes do not get along? And that's what you see with two giants, one named Paul, one named Barnabas. They clash. Barnabas says, I can take him. Paul's like, forget that guy. I jotted down what I think the conversation might have gone like. And Paul's like, John Mark, are you kidding me? He deserted us last time. Barnabas is like, he's young. He's a great talent. That was last time. This is this time. Paul's like, this is not Disneyland, bro. That's not what this trip is. We got to know people we can count on, all right? Not people going to run home to mom and we need people we can count on. Barnabas is like, let's give him another chance, all right? That's what the gospel's about. That's what grace is about. Paul's like, I know you were like voted most huggable at Jerusalem High, but it isn't It isn't because he's your cousin, is he? I mean, that's where, he, that's where it starts getting ugly because John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. I don't know if you know that, all right? John Mark was family. John Mark was family to Barnabas, so maybe somewhere in there, Paul's like, "Yeah, I know he's family. That's why. That's why you're being easy on him." And uh, Barnabas, like, "That's not fair. I stuck. I stuck up for you when nobody else did, and he actually did when nobody else trusted that Paul was a Christian. Barnabas was there." Paul's like, "You know what? He did it. You did it because he's your cousin." The master says, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." And you know what? I'm real. I'm. I'm uh, that guy's really looking back. Barnabas like, good riddance, you Pharisee. All right, that's kind of, that's kind of the way it would go. So good Christians do not always get along. You're like, what should I do about it? Let me give you one more verse, and let's get look at some principles. This is a poor guy. We don't know anything about him. And it says, in Jesus, who is called justice. I mean, that's all we know. You're like, what else about justice? We don't know, right? All we know is that his name was Jesus. He's like, but I don't like that name. Being, you imagine this is Jesus, and they're like, we were, we love what? Why? Just call me Justice. That's that's all we know about him. Okay, these are the only men of the circumcision, which mean Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. All right, one more verse. I forgot verse twelve. And here's a Epaphras. This is the church planter, okay? He's the one that probably got saved under Paul's ministry, went back home to Colossae, and he planted a church. Who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, all right? Some of you are like, you know, I thought prayer was supposed to be easy. You know, Paul apparently didn't think so because he said it's a struggle on your behalf of his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. All right, so let me go back, let me go to the principle. Here's the principle, all those difficult names. Let's just look at this one. Every Christian, every Christian needs some community. And in this list, the whole list, you've got very big diversity. You got men, women, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Jew, Gentile, you've got all these different people. You've got high capacity leaders, you've got service-oriented volunteers. And what you have to understand, please if you don't get anything else, listen to this. The Christian faith, without a doubt, is very personal. It is very personal. You personally have to repent and embrace Christ yourself, all right? God speaks to you personally. It is very much a personal faith, but it is not a private faith, all right? It's not private. It's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. And so he ends the letter in a great way, saying, you know what? I've got people around me, and so do you. And loved ones, since the days of Adam, when he searched for a suitable helper, people have longed for community. They've longed for it. They long for it still. And gospel community, what connects us is that we were very messed up people, broken before a holy God, and yet been saved and redeemed and washed and brought back by the grace of God. That is the commonality that we have, and that's the deepest thing you can have. If it's based on basketball, as soon as you tear your ACL, that relationship is probably over. If it's based on where you shop, or even how many kids you have, or what age your kids are, those are fine, but it's not gospel community. And here's the idea, there is no more formative factor in your life than the people right around you, okay? It's been said a 100 times, you show me your friends, and I will show you your future, okay? Your friends, right now, adults included, that is the future you. That's who you are saddling up with saying, that's what I'm going to be like. You're like, well, he doesn't say it there. He actually illustrates it here, but the Bible teaches it. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise and the companion of fools will suffer harm. I'm going to make a few statements that you, if you don't agree with, that's fine, but just don't, don't send me a chapter. Don't send me saying I disagree with you without some backup besides your experience. And I would just say this, I'm gonna suggest that if you get those close friends around you right, that one single thing will probably play the biggest factor in you becoming not just a good man, but a godly man. Not just a good woman, but a godly woman. The people who are right around you, those three or four different people, those are, that's your gospel community. Let me say it again, and then I'll elaborate on it a little bit. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, and the companion of fools will suffer harm. Put it in the reverse order. He says the companion of fools will suffer harm. Here's what that basically means. It is almost impossible to live right if you're hanging around with the wrong people. It's almost impossible to live right if your community is the wrong people. And on the flip side, and by the way, it doesn't mean you're gonna do something wrong. You just might be caught up in the collateral damage It says the companion of fools suffers harm. Doesn't mean he does harm necessarily, he just suffers harm. And the flip side is the power of being connected to other Jesus followers in community is amazing. It is amazing. The power of just a few people around you going the same direction as a disciple of Jesus, it's amazing the difference. Can I just be blunt? Some of you are actually right next to blessing and you call and you're like, I need help with my marriage and I need help with my kids and I need help with my depression and I need help with my victory. And the whole time, it's like when you pray that, when you pray, there's nothing wrong, there's a lot of resources. But oftentimes when you pray that, you've heard 50 times, get in community, get in community, get in community. And it's like, God is like, It's like you're walking past a water fountain saying, I am so thirsty. God, please quench my thirst. And he's like, bro, the water fountain is like right there. Same thing. I can without a doubt say, I told this to the starting point class as well. The most stuff I've ever learned about marriage is not as much. Yeah, it's been devotionally and prepared messages. But secondarily, and it would be primary if I wasn't a preacher, it would definitely be from the people, the couples that we've spent time around. Some of it good, some of it bad. Some of it with a bunch of morons and fools. And it's like, why are you treating your wife that way, bro? And I look at myself like, don't ever treat your wife that way, okay? But on the other hand, I've seen some godly men that cherish their wives and love their wives and prioritize their wives. And I'm like, that's convicting. I need to do that better. And God uses somebody else right there to help me. gotta fly through these. Let me give you three things and ask you, do you have this in your life? What does a good biblical gospel friend have? And what do they do? First of all, a gospel friend holds you up. A gospel friend will hold you up. Look at all the words in here. He's faithful. He encourages you. He is beloved. He is a fellow prisoner. He is a comfort to me. And part of it is the fact that you're just going to go through some junk, okay? Agreed? I know you're like, I don't want to go through junk. I don't want to go through junk. I want all blue skies and no storms. You know, I'm sorry, you don't, get, you don't get to audit that class, you're gonna go through some difficult times. Everybody is, all right? Jesus never promised, don't get shocked as a Christ follower if you go through some very difficult things, all right? And it's not that God doesn't love you at all. It's not that that, will, and he puts some resources around you, one of which are some close biblical friends to walk through that with you. They did a study at UVA, true story, study at UVA a couple years ago. And what they did is they took a person and they, they put him up next to this big, 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 big hill, And then they recorded what they thought of how big that hill was, and they said the person who was there by themselves, to a person, always judged the hill much, much bigger than the person over here looking at the same hill that had somebody next to them. They're looking at the same obstacle, but with somebody beside them like, I can get through this, I can get through this. And even on a further note on that study, the longer that friend was to them, the smaller the height of the mountain was to them. What's the point? Is they gonna hold you up when you don't wanna go? You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I just supposed to like get rid of my friends? Let me say it again. I'm not talking about good people. I'm saying, do you have, if you're a Christ follower, do you have any godly people right around you? I'm talking about pursuing Jesus, not just, hey, I'm just gonna check it off and go to church as an event. I actually wanna walk with Christ. You're like, what are you telling me? You told us last week to be a missionary, and now you're telling us our close friends ought to be Christians? What is that, what is that? Make up your mind. Well, let me, let me show you a, a, a little part that might help, all right? Picture these concentric circles. This is like a bunch of Bible wrapped into a picture, okay? This concentric circle. Now, out here is just the whoever, all right? I don't even know who's out there. Those are, like your, those are like your Facebook friends, you know? They're acquaintances, all right? They send you pictures of the food they get at the restaurant, whatever. All right, that's like out here. That is out here. Then you get a little bit closer in here, and those are people who you're starting to have some influence with, All right? You know them. You can call them by name when you see them at the movies. You know, you actually know them. Maybe they're already in your connect group, but you've only just met. Now, right in here, you start getting into the people that you really, really care. You care about a lot, all right? When you hear they're hurting, you're hurting. You're not quite right there, but you actually, I'm going to pray for you, and you actually do pray either for them or with them. What I'm talking about and what Paul is talking about in this last part is this part right here. Those three or four men, those three or four women, those three or four people that are right there close to you—do they love Jesus? Are you closer to Jesus? Are you closer to your family? Are you a better woman after you spend time with those people? That's a biblical friend. Do you have somebody like that that's going to hold you, going to hold you up? Now, in order to do that, you can't have a ton of them. So here's the second thing. Now, this is hard for—I'm uh, <laughs> actually. Uh, well, I'm not, even gonna, I'm not gonna say that, okay. <laughs> this is just say, they let you in. They let you in. They let you in. This is why you can't have like 300 really, really, really close biblical friends, okay? You can't have 500 people that you get on Facebook with and say, uh, hey, I'll, I'll, call me anytime you're moving. Be glad to help you move. You know, come on over at 1 o'clock. If, if you ever need something, call me anytime. You need somebody to watch your cat on vacation? I'm your guy, you know. You can't have that many. You can't. All right? My good friends would know I don't need to take care of their cat because I'm going to like FedEx that thing back to Sheol where it came from, okay. I'm just saying you got to have some close friends that you actually could show up at one in the morning and say, you know what, here's what's going on. They can call you on a business trip and go, hey, I'm about to flush, I'm about to flush my life. And you see that in Paul, he's like, beloved brother, beloved brother, he comforted me, he comforted me. All right, let me give you one last thing, all right? Here's the deal, they will pull you back. They will pull you back. I said it a hundred times, you and I are one decision away from stupid. We are We are all one decision away from stupidity. I mean, we are, we are. We can be walking with, you know how long it takes for you to build up your testimony? Okay, you're a Christ follower, maybe you're two years old in the Lord. And you're walking with the Lord and you're changing and your integrity and business is changing and all that's changing. And you can walk with the Lord for 10 years and then in your 11th year, you can just make a stupid decision and especially in the smaller towns in WNC, all of a sudden that testimony that took 10 years to build is gone. It's just flushed. And what happens is God gives you some friends that are guardrails that bump you back when you wanna drive the car off the road. And so they pull you back uh, I'm not gonna say to watch it, but I will say, Lori and I have watched this uh, series. Part of it is just because it takes you back to the 80s, all right? Called Stranger Things. If y'all watch Stranger Things, and it's like it's all the it's in the 80s, which is awesome to see, like station wagons where you look backwards and no seat belts and all that stuff. It's like that's the 80s, all right? I hadn't seen any disco yet, but one of the things, one of the things that they talk about, the kids even know this. Here's what they say: season one, friends don't lie. Friends. I mean, you just look at it. There's this one supernatural girl or this one kind of girl with some freaky powers, and she's like, friends don't lie. Friends don't lie. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good Bible right there. Friends don't lie. They hold you back. They tell you the truth. Friends are not flatterers. They will ask the hard questions. Uh, Proverbs 27:6. faithful the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I think we would all admit we would all admit that kisses are better than wounds, correct? Anybody in here that's like, man, I love wounds. I just, you know, if you're that guy, that's just wrong, okay? So no, no, it's not, it's not, wounds are not fun. Wounds are not fun. But if all you get is like, kiss, 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 oh, you're so awesome, you're so awesome, you're so awesome, and you never have anybody to ask you a hard question, that's not good long-term. Why? Because all of us have some areas that God is still trying to sharpen off in areas even of a little bit of danger if you're not careful. If you don't have somebody that can ask you some questions and maybe you've even kind of deputized them to say, all right, you have permission. Now, don't give this to everybody, okay? Now, some people will take it and they haven't been deputized before, okay? That person is called an outlaw. But I'm just saying, if you've given them permission, show me, if you see a blind spot, tell me. You're like, I, I see my own blind spots. No, you can't see your own blind spots. That's why they're blind. They're not pointing out weaknesses. A blind spot to become a weakness has to be pointed out. A blind spot is something you don't see. You're like, bro, you you don't see this, but here's what's happening. You're pushing your integrity away. You're pushing your wife away, whatever it is. And so uh, here's what one person said. You are one friend away from being a better parent, a better spouse, or one friend away from being a, a worse one. You're like, I want those, I want those. Again, we we could spend the rest of time on this, but I got to jump to the second one. But here, I want those, I want those. You know where it starts? There's a thing called a gospel community that's a church. Now, it's not a bunch of perfect people, so please understand that. It's not a place where nobody disagrees with each other. We got some very strong personalities, all right? And we can have some very intense disagreements. That's fine. But the community is called a church that is the greenhouse in which god wants you to actually flourish in your walk and for us it's not sitting here in church in a seat with people you don't know it's actually what's either it starts with us at least with a connect group a small group like i he told me that a bunch of times and i just don't want to do it well then just say i'm rebellious okay just say i'm rebellious don't say oh i'm so coachable and teachable you're not you're just rebellious You're just rebellious. You're like, God's plan is not for you to go through your Christian life all by yourself. God's plan is not for you to go through your Christian life with just a bunch of good people, a bunch of just moral people who pay their taxes and mow the grass. He wants some people that when you walk away, you're like, man, that hurt good. I'm a better man. I'm a better person because of that. I love God more. I wanna go read my Bible after I'm around her. You have any of those? All right, go to go to next steps at every campus. You're like, that's not real spirit. It's the most spiritual thing you'll ever do. You'll do all week is just go and say, I'd like to find that out. Because what they'll do is they'll push you to also understand God's got a mission for you as well. So let me show you this other one. Every Christian just doesn't have a gospel community. They have a calling on their life. I'm going to give you a hard names and then we're going to wrap up and then I want to pray for a particular group of people uh, today. Let me buzz through this. Every Christian has a gospel calling. Can I, uh, let me give you about a 60-second church history. For the first about 500, 600 years of the church or so, every Christian understood this. They did. Why? Because it's replete in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, we gave pastors what for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Everybody knew there was not this huge divide anymore between the secular and the sacred. Everybody knew that in the gospel, you know what, every calling that you have, whether you're a plumber or a stay-at-home mom or a lawyer or a doctor, whatever, you had a call on your life. You had a call. And then what happened is for a long, about 1,000 years, the church kind of swayed away from the Bible. It's actually kind of swaying away from it a little bit now. But we swayed away from it, and when we did, all of a sudden the separation came back into the church See, in the Old Testament, you had the professionals. You had the priests, and you had the people, and there was a huge gap between the two. The priests were the, were the ones that did all the stuff. They did this stuff. They did the ministry. They were the ministers, and then the people just show up and make your sacrifice. But the New Testament came along, and then guys like Peter, of all people, and Peter's like, you are a royal priesthood. But around the 1600s, when the church got back to the Bible, they're rediscovering this, like, ha, ha. It's not secular sacred. It's not, the first class that, it's not the first class preachers and then the second class people. That's not what it is. There is no first class. Can I just put it as blunt? The calling God has on your life is just as significant as the calling God has on my life. We just have different positions that we play. I don't know how to put it any more blunt than that. No, no, no. God sent you to seminary. That's not the point. The point is if you're a Christ follower, God has a calling on your life. It's a myth. It's a myth to say, I'm not saying God didn't call some specific thing. He called me to do what? Equip the church to teach. He called me as a pastor, absolutely. But when you look biblically speaking, let me show you these guys and a lot of people on this list, they weren't preachers. I'll give you some examples. We'll buzz through these real quick. Luke verse 14, the beloved physician. Luke, the beloved physician, he greets you as does Demas. He apparently was... Paul's physician, but he was a physician by training. He was highly educated. They can see that in the language that is used in Luke and in the book of Acts. But he was a doctor, but he also did a self-funded project which ended up being the book of Luke and the book of Acts to put an account of the early church. You and I might call him a missionary doctor or a bivocational doctor. All right. And it's Demas, we could do a whole study on him. Demas basically... Uh, Demas flames out as well, and we don't ever see him coming back. I can't remember who said it. It said, but some of the biggest hurts you'll have in ministry are those that start the journey with you but don't finish it with you. That's Demas. last letter Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, he says, you know, Demas, having loved this present world, it said, has deserted, has deserted. Don't know what that means. The good part about this is that, that, you know what, he's in the list here, and God... uh, Here's what I finally, I finally realized, is like the fact that Demas is in here shows that God loves me, not the future version of me. God loves you, not the future version of you. Demas is to Paul what Judas was to Jesus in some ways. And do you remember how Jesus actually served Judas? He actually washed Judas's feet? That's Demas. A couple more and then let me make a point here. Verse 15 give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church at her house. We don't know much about her. She's one of two things. She's either a widow using all that she had because the church met in her house, or she was kind of like a CEO type, like a Lydia, like a businesswoman that had some resources, had some wealth, had some things that God had given her. And she was like, because you had to have a fairly big house to have old church in there. So we don't know much about her, but what she does, she was using her resources for the glory of God. And here's the way he ends it. And i want to give you one, one, one part of this verse and then uh, make a couple applications. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And see that also they read the letter from Laodicea. We don't know what that letter is. A lot of people think it's the book of Ephesians. Pretty good, pretty good chance that that's the case. And say to Archippus, <laughs> do you realize when, when they would do these letters, they would bring the whole church together and they would read the letter in front of the church. And so it's kind of cool when your name gets called in church and it's a good thing. You know when it's a good thing. It's like, man, Tychicus, he was awesome. Epaphras, he's awesome. And then he comes to Archippus. Archippus. And here's what he says. Archippus. Anybody in you, you ever get called out in church? Some of you guys, you grew up in church and maybe you had a parent or something that was up here on the platform. Man, they call you out. It's like, you better. You give you that Look. Give you that look like, wait till church is over, okay? Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Let me ask you the question, are you fulfilling the ministry that you have received in the Lord? I'm not talking about cosmetic Christianity. I'm not talking about, hey, popping into church. I'm saying Christ follower. God has given you a ministry. God's given you a ministry. Are you fulfilling the ministry that God has given you? Most of this list, they're not pastors at all. They're physicians, they're businesswomen, they're all different people. They're people at church today, and you look at your vocation as some secondary thing God wants to do. The word voca, like as in vocation, okay? That's where, it's a Latin word. We get our English word, vocation. It's the idea of calling. Your vocation, whether it's secular or sacred, are calls of God on your life. So let me just land the plane here and say two things about this. If you're in business, if you're a businesswoman or a businessman, ask yourself, why did God make me good at business? Why did God make me good at business? Was it just to have your name out there and build up this kingdom and all this stuff so that you can then retire and not work the last one-third of your life? Is that the reason he made you good at business? He gave you these talents as a means of blessing others, blessing the world, and as a platform for the gospel. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, I hate it when you talk about sharing the gospel on your business because if you were out where we were, you couldn't do it. I'm not talking about being weird, okay? I'm not talking about being weird. I'm not talking about trying to even be cute or cliche. Some of you think the only way you can be a Christian in business is by some, you know, making sure your Bible's on your desk or having your business be, let's say you own a coffee shop and I hope I'm not hitting anybody directly because I'm, I'm using, the, like some of you are like, oh, I gotta name my coffee shop uh, Hebrews or something, you know, like that. It's like, you, you don't have to, okay? You don't have to do that. Some of you think you gotta be like super awkward and you're an insurance salesman and you're like, well, now that we've talked about your life insurance, let me talk to you now about life after death insurance. I mean, you gotta squeeze that in there. Some. It's not what I'm talking about talking about you seeing your vocation as a calling from God, not just something that's to take up 40, 50, 60 hours a week. How how am I going to do that? Did you know that 39, there's 40 miracles in the book of Acts? 40. 39 of the 40 miracles take place outside the church. You know what that kind of seems to say? This God wants to do some miracles, not just in this room, but outside this room. You're like, how is that gonna work? How's that gonna work? Let me give you two general things that you've heard a bunch of times, and it's it's been said a few different ways. Let me take this one. Do your work well, do your work well. Do your work well. Do your work well. Do it for the glory of God. I wasn't here a few weeks ago when we went over this passage, but you look across the page in chapter 3, and it says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do it well. Do it with enthusiasm. You're like, my boss is terrible, okay? He's terrible. She's terrible. He doesn't reward me properly. He doesn't give me the recognition. He always takes the recognition and gives me the blame. And I'm not saying that's not hard. What I'm saying for is I'm saying change bosses, Your boss ultimately is a Christ follower as you're doing that job for the glory of God. It says, why? Because you work for the Lord, not just for them. Like, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? There's a ton, do it with excellence. I tell you what would set you apart big time. Just the word that's used in here a bunch is just going going to work with the idea that I'm gonna serve some people today. You're like, I'm the boss, they're supposed to serve me. That's a terrible leadership idea. As a boss, it's not about who's gonna serve you. That's really not it. Even secular books are getting getting into the place where they understand if you're a boss and all it is is about you and your ego and people serving you, you're a terrible boss. I was reading a great book. It's a secular book. I was reading a book by a guy named Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. Leaders Eat Last. And I didn't even know this, but do you know in the Marines, and some of you do, and you might even correct me a little bit on how this works, but in the book it's saying that the Marines... In the Marines, nobody makes it an order. Nobody makes it, you got to do this. They just do it, that the higher-ranked officers, they let the lower-ranked officers eat first. And then if you're the higher-ranked officer, you come in last. What are they trying to do? They're trying to say and trying to show that if you're a leader, if you're a leader, it's not about them serving you. It's about you serving them and making them successful. Okay. So you don't think that will set you apart? You don't go in there and think, man, how can I bless my employees? How can I? Bless my coworkers tomorrow, that'll set you apart in a hurry. But just do it for the glory of God. God, I want, as a sign of your worthiness, I'm doing this for you, okay? Whether I'm writing contracts, leading meetings, or mopping a floor, I'm doing this for you. You don't think that changed your attitude? And here's this last one. But do it intentionally, do it intentionally. Do it intentionally, do it intentionally. It means I've got an intent. I'm intentionally doing what I'm doing because I understand I'm on mission. So let me give you two or four examples. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you need to ask yourself, what, you're like, what, what role am I playing in the advance of the mission? I mean, You're doing an amazing, you're a stay-at-home mom, you are like on the front lines of ministry. You're a stay-at-home mom, you know what you're doing? You are reaching an unreached people group right there in your home. Those three little kids, that's an unreached people group and you disciple them and you raise them up, that's awesome what you're doing. I can't remember who actually wrote this, but it says this, somebody a long time ago said, here's what I'm doing. Somebody said, what do you do, what are you doing? Kind of putting down her role as a stay-at-home mom. And this person said, I'm socializing four homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And what do you do? I mean, that's like, that's, like what, that's awesome. That's what you do. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. All right, same way. Same. You're a public school teacher, you're a police officer, you're a federal court judge. God didn't make all of his preachers. God didn't make all of you pastors. Thank God he didn't do all that, but he put all of you on the front lines of mission. You're like, I'm just a nobody. I'm just a nobody. I didn't even make a list. They don't even know who I am. Listen, what you've got to understand is I, everybody's a nobody. I mean, nobody in here is a first-round draft choice. You, You understand that? Okay, nobody's in here where God's like, I gotta have her on my team. Man, I gotta, nobody in here is a somebody. And so what you and I've got to realize is in whatever God makes us, we're just a nobody, but we want to be a nobody willing to tell anybody about a somebody that wants to save everybody. That's what you got to get in your mind, Okay.